Chapter 14 of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Knights of the Golden Circle. No one was more surprised than Calhoun when told that he had been selected to go north on a secret and most important mission. General Breckinridge and I have selected you, said Morgan, because we have confidence in your sagacity, bravery, and discretion. We know no one better fitted to entrust this delicate and perhaps dangerous mission to than yourself. But I am so young, said Calhoun. While I gladly accept the honor which I feel you have bestowed upon me, would not one older and more experienced than I do better? Your youth is one of the main reasons why we have chosen you, replied Morgan. A youth like you will not excite suspicion half as quickly as a man. Then I am more than willing to go, answered Calhoun, and trust that the confidence you repose in me will not prove to have been misplaced. I have no fears on that score, answered Morgan. I know that you will succeed, if anyone can. The general then fully explained what was required of him. Calhoun listened in silence. I think I fully understand what you want of me, general, but how am I to approach these knights of the Golden Circle? How am I to find out who are knights? That has already been provided for, answered Morgan. We are now ready to initiate you into a camp of the Golden Circle. Does the order exist down south, too? asked Calhoun in surprise. Certainly, to some extent, was the answer. If not, how could we know the secrets of the order? You are willing, I suppose, to take the oaths required? If there is not anything in them to hinder me from being a true son of the South, replied Calhoun. I assure you there is not, for I have taken them, said Morgan. But you must bear in mind that this is a northern order. Its chief purpose is to overthrow the Lincoln government. Its chief cornerstone is states' rights. The Honorable C. L. Vallandingham, who was lately sent into our lines for disloyalty, but who has now found refuge in Canada, is the supreme commander of the order. No truer friend of the South exists than Vallandingham. He believes in the doctrine of secession. The North is sick and tired of the war, and wants to put a stop to it, and let the South go in peace. This is the purpose of the order. All right, said Calhoun. I am ready to join any order that has that for its purpose. Calhoun was conducted to a tent, where, to his surprise, he met quite a number of the officers of the command. There was one stranger present, a gentleman in civilian dress. Calhoun was told that he was from the North, was a high officer in the order, and that he would conduct the initiatory ceremonies. When Calhoun issued from that tent, he was a full-fledged member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. But he had taken only the first degree. The other degrees were to be given to him after he had arrived in the North. After having fully learned the signs, grips, and passwords of the order, Calhoun was ready for his journey. He now received his final instructions from Morgan and Brackenridge. It did not take Calhoun long to see that while these gentlemen were willing to use the order, they had the utmost contempt for it. All nations use traitors and despise them at the same time. The Knights of the Golden Circle were traitors to their section. 
Calhoun felt this, and loathed the men with whom he was to mingle. But if they could help the South to secure her independence, it was all he asked. He, like the noble Major Andre of revolutionary fame, was willing to risk his life for the cause he loved. Andre failed and suffered an ignominious death, but his fame grows brighter with the centuries, while the traitor Arnold is still abhorred. "'Here is a belt containing ten thousand dollars in United States money,' said Morgan, handing him a belt. "'You will need it. Our money don't go in the North.' "'Oh, you must have had your hand in Lincoln's strong-box,' said Calhoun, as he took the money. Morgan smiled as he answered, "'A Yankee paymaster doesn't come amiss once in a while.' Calhoun was next given an official envelope, which he was to hand to General Forrest, who was then operating in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee. "'You will receive full instructions from Forrest,' continued Morgan, "'what to do and how to get through the Yankee lines. We have concluded to send you by way of western Tennessee, as you will not be so apt to meet with any federal officer who might know you. Now go, and may success attend you.' Calhoun took his chief's hand. His heart was too full to say a word a strong grasp, and he was gone. He had no trouble in finding General Forrest, who carefully read the papers that Calhoun handed him. He then scanned Calhoun closely from head to feet. "'I reckon you understand the purport of these papers,' he said, in a rather harsh voice. "'I suppose they relate to sending me through the lines,' answered Calhoun. "'Well, I can send you through, young man, but you are going on a fool's errand.' I have had a good deal to do with those knights of the Golden Circle, as they call themselves. They are all right in giving away everything they know, but when it comes to fighting, bah, one of my companies would lick ten thousand. Then you haven't much faith in the fighting qualities of the knights, said Calhoun with a smile. Faith? Not I. They are Yankees, mere money-grabbers. Ask one of them for ten dollars, and he will shut up as tight as a clam. But they worry the Lincoln government, and keep up a fire in the rear. Therefore, they should be encouraged. You will find them a scurvy lot to deal with, though. How soon can I start north? asked Calhoun. Tonight, answered Forrest. I am the president of an underground railroad. Took my cue from the abolitionists when they were engaged in running our niggers through to Canada. I have a regular mail north. I will send you through with one of the carriers. I reckon I had better send your credentials by a second carrier. It might be awkward if you were captured with them. You must leave here dressed as a citizen, and bear in mind that your name is W. B. Harrison. Where shall I find my credentials? asked Calhoun. At Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is the terminus of my railroad at present. Inquire for Judge Worley. Once in his hands, you will be all right. If all the knights were like him, there would be something doing. But he is a Kentuckian, no whining Yankee. Calhoun had heard much of General Forrest, and during his interview with him studied him carefully. He put him down as a man of indomitable energy, of great courage, and possessing military genius of a high order. On the other hand, he was illiterate, rough in his language, and lacked the polish of a cultured gentleman which Morgan possessed. 
but there was a magnetism about him which drew men to him. If I were not riding with Morgan, I should surely want to be with Forrest, thought Calhoun. Night came, and Calhoun was introduced to the mail carrier, who was to be his guide. He was a thin, wiry man named Givens. In age, Calhoun put him down at about forty. The first few days, during which Calhoun was with Givens, gave him a very high opinion of the guide's bravery and sagacity. Givens related many of his hairbreadth escapes during their journey and seemed to treat them as great jokes. During the entire journey through Tennessee and Kentucky, Givens kept to unfrequented roads, and in the darkest night rode as one entirely familiar with the way. At every place they stopped, they seemed to be expected. A man would take their horses, and in the evenings when they started, they would find fresh horses provided. Givens informed Calhoun that these stations were a night ride apart, and that each a relay of horses was kept concealed in the woods. "'I now understand,' said Calhoun, "'what an underground railroad means. If the abolitionists had as complete a one as you, no wonder they were so successful in getting away with our slaves.' Givens chuckled as he answered, "'They did. I know all about it. Was in the business myself.' You asked Calhoun in surprise, and he instinctively recoiled from the man. A man has to do something for a living, growled Givens. I got so much for each nigger I ran off. He then refused to discuss the subject further. One night as they were traveling at a rapid gait, a low, tremulous whistle came from the side of the road. Givens reined in his horse so quickly that he fell back on his haunches. He answered the whistle in the same low, tremulous note. A man stepped from the bushes into the road and spoke a few words to Givens in a low tone. Givens turned to Calhoun and said, Yanks ahead. We will have to go round them. Under the guidance of the man, they turned into a path through the woods. The way was rough, and Givens swore roundly because they were losing time. A good-sized stream was reached, which they had to swim. They emerged from it wet and out of humor. Givens cursing the Yankees to his heart's content. He explained that it eased his mind. When the road was reached, their guide bade them goodbye and disappeared as suddenly as he had appeared. Givens and Calhoun now urged their horses to their utmost speed in order to reach their next stopping place by daylight. But do the best they could, the sun was an hour high before they reached their haven of rest. Luckily, they met with no one, and they felt safe. "'One more night, and we shall reach the Ohio,' said Givens, when they dismounted, after a long, wearisome night ride. But it was destined that they should not reach the Ohio the next night, for they had not ridden more than five miles after they had started before they were brought up with a sharp command, "'Halt! Who comes there?' "'Citizens without the countersign,' answered Givens, without a moment's hesitation, and then the Calhoun, "'Wheel and run for your life.' They both turned and clapped spurs to their horses, but not before the sentinel had fired. Calhoun heard a sharp exclamation of pain, and turning his head, saw Givens tumble from his horse. He had carried his last mail. There was no time to halt, for Calhoun heard the rapid hoofbeats of horses in pursuit. 
Coming to a crossroad, he sprang from his horse and struck him a vicious blow, which sent him galloping wildly down the road. In a moment, a squad of Federal cavalry passed in swift pursuit. Calhoun breathed freer after the trampling of the horses died away in the distance. But he was alone, without a horse, and in a strange country. He was now thankful that Forrest had not sent his credentials with Gibbons. Calhoun made his way slowly on foot, turning into a road which led in the direction which he wished to go. All through the night he plodded, and when morning came, he found he was close to a large plantation. He determined to make himself known. Placing his revolver in his bosom, where he could get it in a moment, he boldly went up to the house. Fortunately, he met the owner of the plantation, who saluted him with, Hey, get off my place, or I'll set the dogs on you. I want no tramps around here. Calhoun glanced at himself and did not wonder he had been mistaken for a disreputable character. His night's walk had made sad havoc with the looks of his clothes. The road was muddy, and he had fallen down several times. Rather in desperation than thinking it would do any good, he made the sign of recognition of the Knights of the Golden Circle. To his surprise, it was answered. "'Who are you, and why do you come in such a plight?' asked the gentleman. Calhoun's story was soon told. "'And you are one of Morgan's men?' said the gentleman, whose name was Cressy. "'I have a son with Morgan,' and he gave his name. "'One of my scouts,' replied Calhoun, delighted. Calhoun had indeed found a friend, a place of refuge. The next night, with a good horse and guide, Calhoun was taken to a house but a short distance from the river. The farmer who owned the house was to take a load of produce into Mount Vernon that day. Calhoun could easily go with him without exciting suspicion. This was done, and before noon, Calhoun, free and unsuspected, was walking the streets of Mount Vernon. Shortly after dinner, he inquired for the office of Judge Worley, and was shown the most pretentious law office in the little city. Entering, he inquired for the judge, and was told that he was in his private office. "'Tell him that a gentleman wishes to see him on very important business,' said Calhoun. A clerk bade him be seated and disappeared. He returned in a moment and said the judge would see him at once. When Calhoun entered the private office, he saw seated at a desk a dignified-looking gentleman, about sixty years of age, who eyed him sharply, and Calhoun was sure a look of disappointment came over his face. This, then, was the gentleman who wished to see him on very important business, hardly more than a boy. He did not even ask Calhoun to be seated, but said in a cold voice, "'Well, what do you want? Be in a hurry, for I am very busy.' This was not the kind of reception Calhoun was looking for. Gulping down his indignation, he said, "'I am just from the South. I was directed to come to you, who would prove a friend.' "'Ah, someone must have taken an unwarranted liberty with my name.' While he was saying this, Calhoun was aware a pair of steel-gray eyes were trying to read his very soul. "'Is that all?' at length continued the judge. "'I have no time to give you. As I told you, I am very busy.' And he dismissed his visitor with a wave of the hand. At last resort, Calhoun gave the sign of recognition of the Knights of the Golden Circle. 
There was no recognition. Instead, a testy, why don't you go? Calhoun's face flamed with anger, but controlling himself, he replied, When you receive some mail from the South, you may find some dispatches from General Forrest, which will cause you to treat me differently. If such dispatches come, be here in your office at nine o'clock tonight. When Calhoun mentioned mail from the South and General Forrest, the judge turned pale, and Calhoun fancied he made a motion as if to stop him, but the young man paid no attention to the signal and strode indignantly from the office. No sooner was he gone than the judge turned eagerly to a pile of mail which he had just received and which the coming of Calhoun had interrupted him in reading. Hurriedly running over the letters, he picked out one and opened it with nervous fingers. It was written in cipher. Opening a secret drawer in his desk, he took out the key to the cipher and began the translation of the dispatch. As he did so, he gave vent to his surprise in various exclamations. Lieutenant Calhoun Pennington of Morgan's staff will go by name of W.B. Harrison, comes north to fully investigate conditions. If favorable, will invade north. Pennington is member of K.G.C. The judge laid down the letter and seemed to be gazing into vacancy. He was thinking, thinking hard. At last he picked up the letter and read it through to the end. Then he made preparations to go out. I shall not be back again this afternoon, he said to his clerk, as he passed out. You can lock up the office when you leave. I shall not need you this evening. When Calhoun called that evening, he was met at the door by the judge, and given a reception much different from that he had received in the afternoon. I'm glad to see you, lieutenant, said the judge, and he raised his hand as if in a military salute, but was careful not to touch his forehead. And I am rejoiced to make the acquaintance of Judge Worley, replied Calhoun, raising his hand as if to shade his eyes from the light. Then they advanced and grasped each other by the hand, the forefinger of each resting on the pulse of the other. New, said Calhoun. Oh, responded the judge. Lack, answered Calhoun. New, oh, lack, they both said together. Thus, they were introduced to each other as members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. The judge was now profuse in his apologies for his treatment of Calhoun at their first meeting. The fact is, said the judge, we are surrounded by Lincoln spies on every hand. Some of them have gained admittance into the order. One cannot be too careful. Then your youth misled me. I am now surprised that one so young should be selected for so important a commission. No apology is needed, said Calhoun. I confess, I was indignant at first, but now I see you are right in receiving me as you did. Have you received General Forrest's letter yet? Yes, and it makes all plain. By the way, I see that your name is Calhoun. Have you ever noticed our password particularly? No, you must bear in mind I am a new member. Read your name backwards, said the judge with a smile. Calhoun did so, and exclaimed in surprise, New Olac, why, it's my name, spelled backwards. Aye, and it is the name of the greatest American who ever lived, exclaimed the judge with enthusiasm. I trust that you honor the name. 
Would that John C. Calhoun were alive now. What a glorious day it would be for him. But his spirit lives, lives, and thank God there is no Andrew Jackson in the presidential chair. Lincoln seems to have more nerve than I wish he had, answered Calhoun. Lincoln is an ignoramus, a filthy storyteller, a monster. Seward is the brains of the administration. Without Seward, Lincoln would be nothing. Calhoun thought it wise not to dispute with the judge, so he changed the subject by asking the number of knights of the Golden Circle in the state. That, under my oath, I cannot give, answered the judge. I see by General Forrest's letter that you have taken only the first degree of the order. That entitles you to very little information. It is the duty of those who take only this degree to obey, not to question. General Forrest advises that the other degrees be given you as soon as possible. I have already made arrangements to have you initiated into the second and third degrees this evening. That is as high as we can go here. The judge looked at his watch and said it was time to go. Calhoun accompanied him to a room over a saloon, the judge explaining that they had selected the place so as not to excite suspicion by so many men passing in and out. Calhoun found at least fifty men assembled, and when he was introduced as one of Morgan's men, he received a perfect ovation. "'Hurrah for John Morgan!' shouted one enthusiastic member, and the cheers were given with a will. Three cheers were then given for Jeff Davis, followed by three groans for Abe Lincoln. Calhoun could scarcely believe his ears. Was this the North? He could well believe he was in the heart of the South. The object of the meeting was stated, and Calhoun was duly initiated into the second and third degrees. There was no mistaking the nature of the society. Its object was the overthrow of the Lincoln government, but resistance to the draft was the main thing discussed. Their hatred of even the name of Lincoln was shown in every word. Calhoun, now armed with proper credentials, was told that to obtain the information which he sought, he would have to visit the Grand Commander of the State, who was Dr. Warrington of Springfield. Calhoun marveled that the head officer of such an order should reside under the very shadow of the State Capitol. The next day found Calhoun in Springfield. It was full of Federal soldiers, and from almost every house a United States flag was flying. It did not look like a very promising place for opposition to the Federal government. But Calhoun afterwards learned that the place was honeycombed with members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Calhoun was received by Dr. Warrington with the greatest caution, and it was only after he was fully satisfied that his visitor was what he represented himself to be, that the doctor consented to talk. "'Be frank with me,' said Calhoun. "'John Morgan is contemplating a raid in the North, and he wishes to know whether in that case he can expect any aid from this order, and if so, to what number?' The doctor seemed to be fired with the idea of Morgan making a raid, but said, "'If you are to be given the full information you ask for, you must be initiated into the fourth degree of the order. That is a degree which but very few take, and can be given only with the consent of the Supreme Commander. The Grand Commanders of the different states meet the Supreme Commander in Canada next Tuesday. This is Friday. You had better attend that meeting, 
as your mission is very important. Why meet in Canada? asked Calhoun. Because it is safer, and we want to meet the supreme commander of the order. Aye, I understand, said Calhoun. Mr. Stop on your life. Mention no names. Our oaths forbid it. I stand corrected, answered Calhoun humbly. It was arranged that Calhoun was to accompany Dr. Warrington to Canada, but the doctor warned him that on the cars they must be to each other as strangers. When we reach Detroit, said the doctor, go to the Russell House and register as from Chicago. Write Chicago, C-H-I-C, period. I think I will go through to Chicago this evening, said Calhoun. I should like to make some investigations there. You can meet me there Monday. So it was arranged, the doctor giving him the names of a half a dozen men in that city whom it might be well for him to see. But mind, said Warrington, do not tell anyone of Morgan's contemplated raid. That must be a secret. Calhoun spent two days in Chicago, and what he saw and learned there surprised him more than ever. Opposition to the Lincoln government was everywhere. The leading newspaper boldly demanded that the war be stopped, boastingly proclaimed that there would be a fire in the rear that would bring Lincoln to his senses. Resistance to the draft was openly talked on the streets. It was even hinted that there was a secret move on to liberate the prisoners at Camp Douglas and burn the city. This is proving interesting, thought Calhoun. The whole North seems to be a seething volcano, ready to burst forth in flames, yet something seems to smother the flames. Calhoun had an inkling of what smothered the flames when, representing himself as a young Englishman, he asked a federal officer why the government permitted such open talk of treason. The officer smiled as he answered, It is better for them to talk than act. The government has its eye on them. As long as they only talk, it lets them alone. The first overt act will be crushed with a heavy hand. Then Calhoun remembered what both Worley and Warrington had told him, that government spies were in the order, and that they knew not whom to trust. Would the spies of the government find out who he was and his mission? It was not a very comforting thought. End of chapter 14